Coming to a retreat is quite a special time in our lives, especially a retreat of six months, six weeks or three months, or six months. (laughs) Because it's a chance to disentangle ourselves from the busyness of our worldly concerns. And as you might still remember, life in the world can be fast-paced, it can be hectic, it can be very involving, very engaging, and it's very difficult to actually step back from it all, to put it all down, to let it go. And a retreat provides that opportunity. It's the chance to quiet down in order to see things in a clearer and more profound way. Now in the beauty and the stillness of these surroundings, over this period of time, I think it's possible to find again that place of beauty and stillness within ourselves. Steve mentioned last night as poet Galway Cannell. From another one of his poems, he has a very beautiful line. He says, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To teach it in words and in deeds, it is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. And that's what the opportunity of a retreat provides, that we reconnect with that loveliness, with that place of self-blessing. There's a feeling of great joy and ease when we can learn or experience how to put things down, even for a moment. To actually have the mind let go, to come to that place of non-grasping, non-holding, non-clinging. It's really letting go of the struggle that our mind is so frequently engaged in. If we all lived here for these six weeks or three months and was simply living together in silence, that itself would be tremendously rejuvenating. Just three months of silence. (laughs) Just saying the words is a relief. (laughs) You know, when I go on retreat myself and it's like the day, the moment, of going in and closing the door. It feels like this huge burden just by that act, by that commitment to be silence. That already a huge burden has been lifted. But we actually do something much greater than the rejuvenation of silence. And that is that we make this place which is a physical sanctuary, a physical place of refuge, 
into a refuge or a sanctuary of very profound and transforming spiritual practice, spiritual insight. An amazing thing happens in this silence when we also undertake the discipline of careful observation, careful looking, careful seeing. Both in our lives and also at the beginning of a retreat, we need to learn how to turn our minds away from the concerns of the world, the involvement of the world, the being lost in worldly activities. We need to learn how to turn our minds towards the Dharma, towards the truth, towards freedom, towards compassion. so that we can create a context of understanding for all of our experience, for all the ups and downs in our lives and in our practice. A context of understanding that gives some meaning to it all. There is a teaching which quite specifically shows us how to turn our minds towards the Dharma, towards freedom, and it's really the foundation of all the work that we do. It becomes a very powerful practice, this particular teaching, if we both reflect on it in our daily lives, but also let it percolate throughout the whole course of this retreat, because they're reference points. They're four reflections which put us on the glide path to enlightenment, to awakening. In many of the teachings, the Buddha spoke of the very great preciousness of human birth. And this is the first reflection, mind-changing reflection, reflection which turns the mind towards the Dharma. That is the reflection or consideration of the great preciousness of our human birth. Most of you are undoubtedly familiar to some extent with the Buddhist cosmology. It's vast. And when you read the teachings, it's amazing. I mean, the, the infinite number of universes and world systems and planes of existence in the higher realms and the lower realms and 10,000 world systems of each of the planes of existence and it goes on and on and on. And within all of this, within all of this infinite possibility of life forms, of taking birth, it's a very rare event to take birth as a human being. You know the famous, the famous story or parable of the blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean and the yoke, just a wooden yoke, uh, floating on the surface of the ocean. Now we're not talking about Gaston Pond out here. Now think of the Pacific. 
of the Atlantic, big. And then there's one blind turtle at the bottom and one little wooden yoke floating someplace. And every hundred years, the blind turtle emerges and sticks its head up to the surface. The Buddha said that the odds that that turtle will stick its head through the yoke, which is just floating randomly on the surface of the ocean, the odds of that happening are greater than the odds of some being in one of the lower realms taking rebirth as a human. So we did pretty well <laughs> in this incarnation. It's worth reflecting on that. It's worth reflecting on the rarity and the preciousness of it. And what makes it so precious is that the human birth is like arriving at some great treasure island where every happiness is possible. Where does happiness come from? It comes from understanding the Dharma, understanding the truth, understanding what are the causes behind different results. As a human being, we have that capacity for understanding. We have the capacity to make wise choices. We have the capacity to be happy. But maybe we don't have such a sense of the vastness of the cosmology and different lives and world systems and planes of existence. We can see the preciousness of our circumstances within the context of this very life. We don't have to even necessarily think about, about the bigger picture. The most basic principle in all of the teachings, and it will come up again and again over the retreat, and it's really the core of what we need to understand because it contains within it, this particular understanding contains within it the realization both of how things work and how we can be free. And this particular core understanding is that nothing arises without a cause that all situations, all experiences, arise when the conditions for them are present. And if the conditions are not present, the situation does not arise. And these conditions are always changing. Conditions are very impermanent. You know, we've seen so many places in the world and perhaps in our own lives or the lives of people we know where we're going along and things are working well and there's stability and there's security and we think we know what's going to happen. And in a day or a week or a month, the whole world, our whole world, can turn upside down. You know, we see it in different places in the world where violence or war breaks out, or natural disaster, or economic or social disasters, or disease. Everything arises out of conditions, and the conditions are very uncertain. 
we are not exempt from this great truth of impermanence or uncertainty. So the reflection, this first mind changing of the preciousness of human birth, it doesn't only mean the preciousness of our having taken birth as a human being, but even more specifically for each one of us, it means the preciousness of the circumstances that we now find ourselves in, where there is the leisure, the resources, the interest, the possibility to gather here for this kind of Dharma practice. It's very rare and very precious in the world. It's helpful to reflect both at the beginning of a retreat and throughout at what a great blessing this is in our lives. And not to take it for granted because it is uncertain, the conditions which make this possible. When we reflect on this, it can impart a sense of urgency, a sense of ardency, a quality of energy to our practice. And also a feeling of great gratitude. It's as if this is our time. All the conditions have come together. And as Steve mentioned, or Carol mentioned the other night, so many threads needed to come together. And here we are, and this is our time to practice. And if we realize this and the preciousness and rarity of it, it can give us a lot of energy through the inevitable ups and downs and difficulties that will come. Because even among beings who are born as human beings, it's rare to hear the Dharma. And even among those who hear the Dharma, it's rare to have interest. And even among the, those who have interest, it's rare to be motivated enough to practice, to actually do it. And even among those who are inspired to do it, it's even more rare to have the kind of commitment that we all share to come here for this kind of intensive duration. When we reflect on this, this first mind-changing reflection, and realize that we've all done the work that made this possible. We've all created the conditions in our own lives for this to happen. It's not by accident. It happens out of conditions. It can engender in us and for each other a tremendous feeling of respect, self-respect, and respect for everyone here. It's really the flowering of what in Buddhism are called paramis. That is all the past wholesome actions which creates a force field of good result. So we're all sharing. It's, it's in some, in some uh, 
Buddhist traditions, they talk of Buddha fields. And I'm not exactly sure what a Buddha field is, <laughs> but this feels like a possible Buddha field. <laughs> you know, where people gather together with this kind of commitment and sincerity to awaken. Very powerful. As a symbolic image for all this, if you remember the story of the Bodhisattva, that is the being who became Buddha, Bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment and assailed by doubt. You know, it's personified as Mara. Mara came and raised all kinds of doubts in the mind of the Bodhisattva. What right do you have to be sitting here? This is not the right time. I'll do it next year or whatever. And as the legend goes, the Bodhisattva simply touched the Mother Earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting on that, what is called the diamond throne, the place of enlightenment. That through countless lifetimes he had created the parami, which made that seat lawful for him. And we have each done the same. So in moments of doubt or hesitation or wonderment, what am I doing here? You might let your fingertips touch Mother Earth through the carpet and through the floor <laughs> to bear proper witness. So this is the first mind changing the first reflection which turns our mind away from worldly affairs towards the Dharma, towards awakening, the preciousness of human birth, the preciousness of this opportunity to practice coming out of our own paramis. The second mind changing, the second reflection which turns our mind towards the Dharma, is the reflection and the experience of impermanence. And in some way we could understand this as the whole of practice. If we truly, deeply, completely could see and understand and realize the truth of impermanence, the mind would be free. So what our task is, is to bring our understanding of impermanence from the intellectual level, which we all grasp, this is not a hard concept. You know, as some, as some of the teachings are, this is not a difficult one, that things change. So we can grasp it intellectually, but we need to bring it down to a place of living wisdom. Because it's on that level that it will free us. When we reflect on and see deeply, and this is very much the essence of the meditation practice, we're practicing seeing this repeatedly over and over again, seeing the changing nature of things. When we see it deeply and profoundly, 
what happens is that the mind relaxes, the mind lets go. The mind stops struggling to grasp, to hold on, to cling. And in that letting go is a taste of freedom. It was very much <clears throat> this reflection on impermanence that inspired the Bodhisattva to seek enlightenment. It's said in the, in the suttas, in the discourses, that he reflected, while still a prince, why should I, who am subject to birth, decay, and death, why am I, who am subject to this truth, this law of impermanence, also seek that which is impermanent? Why should I spend my life seeking that which is also going to inevitably change? It was that reflection which inspired in him the search for and the realization of what is unborn, what is undying. I have found it very instructive to look in my life and observe the lives of people around me and to see how much of the time we engaged in this futile seeking after other impermanent things. And so I would, I would encourage you to reflect a bit, how is it that we're living our lives? Are we living for the next whatever? <laughs> the next meal, the next job, the next relationship, the next vacation? the next breath. That's the same principle. Are we practicing with that energy of what's coming next? Forgetting that whatever it is, is also part of this endless passing show of empty phenomena. Continuously changing phenomena. One of the things my first teacher, Munindraji, he would say very often in, in his teachings, say, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? The end of tasting? How many tastes do we need? And how many sights do we need? There is no end to that precisely because they're always changing. And so if that's what we're looking for, there's always the need to go after another and another and another, never coming to completion. This understanding of impermanence is tremendously profound. You might reflect for a moment on what has happened to all our past experiences. Where are they now? Know all the wonderful things, all the terrible things. From a certain perspective, it's like a dream. So we want to develop a clear and deep seeing of impermanence, both on a momentary level, and this is what 
can very much be refined in the meditation practice where we see that on the, on the most subtle, deepest levels of experience there's nothing to hold on to. But we can also reflect this great mind-changing reflection on impermanence about things that are already in our experience, which we know already, but may not attend to very carefully. So how can we reflect on impermanence in our lives? One suggested way is the reflection that all of life, every birth, ends in death. Inevitably. That our life is only running out. And our life every day is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. How does this make us feel? Now when we open to this truth, that the end of birth is death, and that we're heading that way rather rapidly, are we frightened? Do we pull away from it? Do we not want to look at it? Does it interest us? How do we hold this? One of the things that I appreciate so much in the Buddha's teachings is that he just so clearly said it how it was, how it is. This is the nature. This is what's true. Can we look at it? And can we understand the implications of it for our lives, or do we push it aside? So this is one way for us to think about or to reflect on the nature of impermanence, reflection on death. Another way is the understanding that the end of all accumulation is dispersion. You know, we spend so much of our lives accumulating things, people, objects, situations, experiences. Accumulation, sort of the watchword of our culture. And yet the end of all accumulation is dispersion. Ajahn Chah, that a wonderful Thai meditation master who died just a couple of years ago, he caught the essence of this very beautifully and succinctly. He was holding up this very rare and beautiful cup you know, that somebody had given him. He said, the way that we should relate to this cup <clears throat> is as if it's already broken. And that just captures the possibility of relating to things with a free mind. We use it, we can enjoy it, we can appreciate it, but we know the end of all accumulation is dispersion. And so we're not attached, we don't cling. And we don't suffer. The end of all meeting is separation. Now with so many of these reflections, we don't like to do them. We don't, because they really, they really touch our deepest attachments. Whether it's attachment to life, to the body, to people, to things. The end of all meeting is separation at some point or another. And the image used is, in this particular reflection is thinking of it 
like people mingling in a dream. You know, a dream comes and there's interactions and then dream, we wake up, or the dream changes, and all life is like that. So again, in our relationships to people, can we understand the difference between love and attachment? This is a very critical distinction. This second mind-changing reflection, this reflection which turns our mind towards the Dharma, it reorients us. When we reflect on impermanence on all of these levels, it reorients the mind towards letting go rather than holding on. Towards giving rather than getting. And what is so beautiful about our doing this, <coughs> both in thought reflection and in direct meditative experience, is in the awareness of impermanence and in that moment of letting go, of non-grasping, we can taste the joy of a free mind. The first mind-changing reflection is the precious human birth, the preciousness of our circumstances. <coughs> the second is the reflection on impermanence. The third mind-changing consideration is the understanding that all of our actions have consequences. And within the Buddhist teaching, of course, this is known as the law of karma, that actions bring results. We may not always have the wisdom to see correctly what results <clears throat> will come from our actions. Or maybe we only have a partial vision rather than a complete one. But this is really the common understanding that we all share in the way we operate in the world. We do things because we think it's going to bring some kind of desired result. That's why we do them. Whether it's for some kind of worldly gain or interpersonal connection or for the development of compassion or wisdom, we undertake actions because we anticipate a result. So actions have consequences. But the Buddha went one essential step further in describing this law of karma. And it's this particular clarification which actually is at the heart of every possibility of happiness for us in our lives and also for the undertaking of the entire spiritual path. So this is a very core clarification the Buddha made. Not simply that actions bring results, but that what most completely, determine, what most completely determines the result of the action 
is the motivation behind it. It's not so much the action itself, but the motivation behind it which determines the fruit. There's a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of motivation. This is the key element in our hearts. What is the motive? We can look at this carefully in our lives. Notice the difference when we act based on generosity or envy or love or jealousy. And what's interesting is that it could be possibly exactly the same outward action. And yet the motive can be entirely different and it's the motive which will determine the result. So this reflection on the law of karma, this mind-changing reflection, that which turns our mind towards the Dharma is saying very clearly and precisely, pay attention to the motivations behind your actions. We can also have very different motivations for being here. And probably there are a hundred different reasons why people came. Maybe people have come to practice really just to de-stress from the stressful conditions of life. Maybe to understand and free oneself from situations of suffering or difficulty. Maybe the aspiration is for awakening, for liberation, for enlightenment. One of the things that has been most transforming for my life and practice in these last few years is seeing that all of our individual motivations for practice can be held in a larger understanding. Whatever our individual motivations are, each one of them can be held in a larger context. And that is, most fundamentally, that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. That we can nurture the motivation that our practice, that our aspirations, be for the benefit, for the welfare of all beings. Understanding that can change our whole relationship to practice. So that instead of it being a kind of striving for some kind of self-accomplishment, we can begin, even in a very small way, to nurture that motivation that what we're doing may be for the benefit of all. It has a profound effect on the quality and the nature of our practice.
In Pali and Sanskrit, this motivation or this quality is called bodhicitta. And the literal meaning is enlightened mind or awakened heart. But that can sound very far off. Uh, that sounds like a good idea to have an awakened heart. A way of understanding and that brings it closer to where we actually are. And I found it a very mm, down-to-earth translation of bodhicitta. A kind heart. Can we develop a kind heart? You know, and as we go through the retreat and practice the different Brahma-viharas of metta, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, really all of those are about this quality of bodhicitta, of developing a kind heart. One of the most inspiring embodiments of this quality is the Dalai Lama. I'd like to read what he says about this just a little bit. Speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the positive mind, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. I think that's why people take note of me and like me, because of my good heart. So one question, one obvious question might arise. How does sitting here, watching our breath, lifting, moving, placing, being mindful through the day, help anybody else? How, how is what we're doing here of any benefit to anyone else? I think that's a reasonable question in the context of understanding bodhicitta. It happens in a couple of different ways. The first way is given the importance of understanding the motivation behind our actions, we need to be able to see what our motivations are. And this is not an easy task. The question of motivation behind action is extremely subtle and complex and often quite hidden. Because often our motives are mixed or unconscious and at times quite determinedly unskillful. <laughs> We're choosing to do something unskillful. 
We really need a tremendous courage and honesty and willingness to take a look at what is in our hearts, at what our motives actually are. We need to develop the stillness and the clarity and the precision and the mindfulness and awareness in order to see. Otherwise, what happens is we simply, in our lives, act out all the forces of our conditioning. If we don't see clearly, we don't have a choice. For quite a long time in my practice, I felt embarrassed, ashamed, judged whenever I would see the different kalesas or defilements in my mind, especially when other people would point them out. <laughs> you know, and I could feel all kinds of defensiveness and, and especially with, or particularly with different teachers, you know, really whose job it is to do exactly that. But over the years of practice, I've come to the point very often where I am delighted to see the kalesas, to see the defilements, because I would much rather see them than not see them. Because in the seeing of whatever it is, of greed or anger or ill will or pride or whatever particular form it takes, it's precisely in the seeing of them that we have the chance, the ability to let go, to see the transparency of them, to see the emptiness of them. And so it can really be a source of great joy every time a kalesa appears. Oh, good, I see you. I had one, one little example of this, this last spring. Uh, I was on a self-retreat and a few of us for a couple of months rented this very beautiful house uh, in Cape Cod. And I was on a little cliff overlooking uh, the bay, the water, and there was this beautiful, long, empty beach just below the house, maybe 10 miles or 15 miles, it was really long. And we were there in uh, April and May, and it's still April particularly, still pretty windy and cold, so there were very few people, almost no one around. It was a very pristine place, very quiet, and we were doing our practice. And just enjoying the stillness and the beauty and the silence. And one night, I'm up in my room, sitting, meditating, and I hear these cars driving along the beach. I couldn't believe it. It just, what in the world is a car doing on the beach? It really didn't compute in my mind at all. And then at, at one point, one of the cars was one of these you know, sports vehicles. Uh, it kind of stopped right below where the house was. And I'm, my mind is sort of imagining all kinds of things. And then I hear his, the wheels spinning on the car. And the first thought in my mind, oh good, I hope he gets stuck. <laughs> Because I was so, I don't know where in the spectrum it fits between annoyance, irritation, anger, <laughs> somewhere in there. 
of just why anybody would want to disturb the beauty and the silence of the environment like that. And for some period of time, I was really caught in that, in that reaction. But at a certain point, I realized what was going on in myself, that I had gotten really tight and contracted and you know, all, the, all the symptoms of anger and annoyance. And slowly, when I began to see that, the mind kind of eased into equanimity. And then at a little further point, it actually eased into sympathetic joy. I thought, well, these guys, and they were guys. <laughs> these guys are having fun. Yeah, and I later realized that this was one of the beaches on the Cape where that's what people did. It was, it was a beach that people used for you know, driving these sports vehicles on. And it got to a point where I could just relax and appreciate the fact that they were having a good time and enjoy it. But it was just a little vignette of an example of how when we don't see the defilement in our mind, we're caught in it and we don't have a choice. And I could have gone on a long time feeling pretty angry. And in the moment of actually becoming aware, not only can we let go of the anger, it could actually be transformed into some more positive feeling. So we want to see. That's the whole point. Really welcome the whole range of what's going to come up during this time. It's a great gift. I read in one text, they, they, they use this example. I, the example is, what, what would be of greater value to you? Coming down to breakfast one morning and finding $10 million or finding your worst enemy who points out all your faults. <laughs> Now, for most of us, I think our first, re first reaction is, oh, I could do a lot, even good things, with that $10 million. But the whole point of the story is our worst enemy who pointed out all our faults would truly be of greater value to us because it would really help us to see. And out of the clear seeing comes freedom. That's why the work that we're doing here actually is the foundation of bodhicitta. We need to be able to both see and understand our own motivations and to purify our hearts, to let go of the unskillful ones, to act and to cultivate the skillful ones. That is what truly becomes a benefit, not only to ourselves, but to all beings. There's a big shift which can take place in the practice when we go from the understanding that our practice will inevitably help all beings. There's no way that it cannot do that because as we get freer of 
anger and judgment and hatred and fear and jealousy and more filled with acceptance and love and compassion, it cannot but help touch and benefit all others. But when we make the shift from the understanding that it will inevitably help all others to making our concern for the welfare of all the motivation for our practice, when we put it at the head of our practice rather than at the end, that can change the way we undertake the work we're doing. And there are some ways to nurture this. It's not that we should expect this to be fully blown, you know, that we have this understanding or aspiration, yes, all of a sudden, our only concern is for the welfare of all. As the Dalai Lama said, he can't really pretend to be practicing bodhicitta. You know, he's, he thinks it's a good idea. Well, we can think of it, we're at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of it. We're simply planting the seed and perhaps watering it a little bit and nurturing it. And we can do it in some very simple ways during this time of the retreat. And this is, if you like, you can do this at the beginning of a sitting. We just make this aspiration, may this sitting, may my practice, be for the welfare of all. So we set our mind, we just set it in that direction. And at the end of the sitting, if you like, you can dedicate the merit. May the merit of this sitting, may the merit of my practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. It has a powerful transformative influence on our hearts. It makes our practice very big very all-encompassing. So this is the third reflection which turns the mind towards the Dharma, the understanding of the law of karma, the importance of our actions, the importance of motivation, and beginning to see the tremendous beauty of bodhicitta as the motivation for our practice and our lives. And the last reflection, which turns our mind towards the Dharma, is that reflection which sees the defects of samsara. Samsara means, that's the Pali word, which means literally perpetual wandering. Just wandering through the countless cycles of birth and death and rebirth. And whether you think of this from life to life or within this very life, we can see the same thing. Now the example given is of a bee trapped in a jar and it flies to the top, it flies to the bottom, it goes all around, but it's still caught in the jar. We're like that bee. We can fly and have the most exalted experiences or the most terrible ones of suffering, but we simply go around and around within this world of conditioned existence. How many worlds how many births did you take today? Countless. Probably thoughts of family or friends or work or anticipation of what's going to be in the next weeks. 
countless in one sitting, in one walking, between one step and the next, how many different mind worlds are created. This is our life. We're creating over and over and over again. This is samsara. This is this perpetual wandering. Can we free ourselves from this? We really have to emerge from this great dream of ignorance in which we're living and inhabiting these mind-created worlds. There's one Tibetan teacher, he, he, he wrote this. It's a perfect description of what we do. And it's, it's really an admonition not to do it. Do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. Do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. <laughs> and when we watch our minds, we see this exactly what we're up to. But through the power of awareness, through the power of mindfulness, we can come out of that. Notice what it's like when you've been in a long thought form. You've been inhabiting some mind world for a period of time. Notice what it's like when the mind wakes up from that. Just pay attention to that moment of waking up, of coming out. It's this huge relief, this huge sense of ease. We get a taste of a free mind. So these are the four mind-changing reflections. Four reflections which turn our mind away from the worldly concerns into the domain of Dharma. Reflection on the preciousness of human birth, the preciousness of our circumstances here, that it's very rare. Reflection and experience of the truth of impermanence, which really leads us, allows us to let go, to stop the grasping, the struggling, we can settle back. The reflection on the law of karma, so that we pay careful attention to our actions, knowing that each of our actions, even the very small ones, have consequences. And they have consequences based on the motivation. So we really can make this a profound part of our practice through the day, can you stay aware of the motives? Can you investigate? Can you look? Letting go of the unskillful ones, cultivating the skillful ones. And the fourth reflection is on the defects of samsara, the endlessness of it. And the possibility of emerging from that. And all of these reflections can be held in the great beauty of bodhicitta that all of the work we do can be undertaken with the aspiration that it be for the benefit of all beings. This is not an easy task.
It's the most difficult and the most challenging thing we can do in our lives. Spinoza, at the end of his very great philosophical work, The Ethics, he ended it with this one line when he said, all noble things are as difficult as they are rare. And this is so true of our Dharma practice. It's difficult and it's rare and it is the most noble thing we can be doing. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.